David, could you put back up the catechism question? I was going to say something about this earlier. As most of you know that are here, we are working through for the next 52 weeks the, uh, the New City Catechism. And I hope you're doing that at home with your children particularly. Uh, as I saw this up here earlier, I saw it on the screen earlier, I, got, I, I thought back to when our kids were so small. And, and we walked through a catechism with them. It's a little, not quite as extensive as this one, actually. As a matter of fact, the, our second question, what is God, was really just kind of the first uh, sentence of that answer there. But that's, uh, uh, they were also four and five years old then, so it made a little bit of a difference what they could memorize at that point. But it did bring back some great memories of times that, that our kids were growing in the Word and growing in Christ, or growing in their understanding of God and their understanding of Christ. They weren't growing in Christ because they weren't Christians then. And I remember somebody one time, uh, they heard uh, Carol Beth, our oldest, uh, talking about the catechism or reciting the catechism. We were asking her the questions. And afterwards he challenged me and he said, now question number four was, what is holiness? Or what, what, no, what does God want us to be? And the answer was simply, to be holy. And this person said to me, he said, she has no idea what it means to be holy. And I said, you know what, you're absolutely right. But when she is old enough to know what it means to be holy, she will know that's what God desires of her life. That's why the catechism is important that we learn. And so I saw question two there, and it's what is God? And you might say, well, why don't you ask it, who is God? But honestly, in our day and time, in our culture, that's the question that has to be asked. What is God? You can have people on the street, people at your job. This is not the sermon, by the way. But uh, you can have people at work who will use the word God, and you will use the word God, and you will mean two entirely different things about him, about that word, who it is. Uh, Pew Research released a study just this past week on what people who are professing Christians believe about God. And it was, uh, you'll hear more about that in a future sermon, but it was frightening what people who profess to be Christians mean when they use the term God. And it has nothing to do with the biblical God. So I, I thought it'd be fun this morning since we're doing this catechism and it's in your uh, faith talk and many of you have bought the book and many of you have the app and any other way that you can do it. It'll be fun just to do it together this morning. The print's a little small, but I'm going to trust that you can read that. Because even with my cataracts, I can read that. All right, I can't back there, but I can here. So the question is, what is God? God is the creator. That's a great theological statement about who and what God is. And I, I guarantee you, if you will train your children and train yourselves in that, you'll have a heads up on the culture that does not understand God at all. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. As we move into this chapter where Paul continues discussing the concept 
of justification by faith alone. I've often wondered, as I've studied Romans, why Paul spent so much time just defining, just describing, just helping us see what justification by faith alone really is. He, he stresses it, he reiterates it, he presses it over and over again in chapters 1 through 4. He doesn't get into the application of it until chapter 5, what it means to stand justified before God. But he wants us to understand this. And I think there is the answer. We live in a day that is so confused. We live in a day that so does not understand what justification by faith alone really is that we need to understand it. Paul lived in a day where that was such a foreign concept to everybody around him. And and he knew they needed to understand it. But just as they did, so do we in the 21st century. There are many people who say, oh, I've got it. It's justification by faith alone, by by grace alone, in Christ alone. That's it. But what in the world does all that mean? Paul said, I want you to understand it's not a new concept. It's not something I dreamed up. It's not something that came about just when Christ came and walked on the earth and died on the cross for our sins and was raised on the uh, on the third day for our, for our life, for our justification and for our sanctification. It, it's not a new concept that just began in Jesus. As a matter of fact, in chapter 4, he's going to say, I want you to know, it goes all the way back to Abraham. It goes all the way back to the, the, almost the very beginning of creation, just shortly after that. It goes back to show us that God has always worked on the basis with, with, with people of justification by faith alone. Not by works, not by good deeds, not by what you can do to try to please God. I heard a preacher several years ago, he was a preacher who had long since departed from the gospel without a doubt, but he had a good TV ministry and made a lot of money, so he kept on preaching. And on this particular time I heard him, I only heard him about five minutes, long enough to get this statement that he made, he, he gave a summary story to kind of summarize the faith that he taught. And he used the illustration of a frog. I don't know why frogs always work themselves into all sorts of illustrations. But he used the illustration of a frog. And he said, on this particular day, it seems that a frog fell into a pail of milk. And he he couldn't get out. The, The sides were too high and the Milk was not sufficiently high enough that he could grab hold of the edge and he, he couldn't get anything to, to get any push on with his legs. When he would push on the milk, it would just go right through. And so he just sat there and he, he couldn't leap out because he had no foundation to jump on it. He always failed, though he tried and tried and tried. He kept paddling, doing all he could think to do to stay above the milk. So he just paddled and paddled and paddled. And, and sure enough, after a while, the paddling churned the milk enough that it formed a pad of butter. And when he formed the pad of butter, he was able to get his feet on it, and that gave him a little bit of leverage where he could launch himself to freedom. The preacher's message that day was, just keep on paddling. Keep on working. Keep on doing your best, and you will make it. You will finally make it. You know, that actually does pretty much describe the false gospel that we find in our country today. And you know, if you'll just try hard enough, be good enough, do enough, 
then, then someday you will just simply make it. Paul says that's just not true. Matter of fact, in the passage that, that Pastor Ricky read earlier for our hearing of the word out of Philippians chapter 3, Paul made it clear if anybody had a reason to think that they could be right with God on the basis of works, it was me. I had it all. I was a religious man. I, I hated the church. I hated the concept of justification by faith alone that, that the early church was beginning to preach and teach in Christ alone. I hated that. I persecuted the church with great zeal. I wanted to destroy the church because I was a good man in my own eyes and in the eyes of those around me until the day I came face to face with Christ. And one of the things Paul is trying to get us to do in, in the whole of, of the book of Romans, he's trying to get us to come face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's trying to get us to see that it's not up to us, it's not something we can do, it's not something we can work out, we can't paddle hard enough and work hard enough and do good enough that someday God will say, well, you're all right. It's, it's kind of interesting to me that if you poll America, and it's been done on numerous occasions, and ask America, what is your favorite Christian hymn? Most of the time, in every poll I've ever seen, do you know what comes up? Number one, amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Was grace had taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious, how precious is that grace? Did that grace appear the hour I first believed? Grace appeared, and I believed. Grace appeared, and it changed my view. It changed my life. It opened my eyes. That's a favorite hymn of Americans. And yet we sing that beautiful hymn written by John uh, 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 Newton, thank you, not John Owen, that's the Puritan, John Newton, written by him, a former slave trader, a former scoundrel, who recognized that he had done absolutely nothing, but he came to Christ when God's grace opened his eyes. The truth of the matter is, modern man is pretty deeply hostile to the gospel of justification by grace alone, the whole concept in Christ alone, in our plurality of religions. We think everybody's got to be right. We talked about that last week, at least some right. Man today is much more comfortable with a, a gospel message that kind of reflects a financial commercial you've seen on TV. can't remember which financial group it is, but they said, you know, we... We make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. And people today like to think, well, we, we're saved the old-fashioned way. We earn it. We do it ourselves. Justification through the good life is what computes in most, American, uh, most Americans today. And sadly, it is what is preached and proclaimed and taught in many pulpits across this land. Paul says, I want you to understand that is just not true. So in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, this is what Paul says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? You know, what did he get in the flesh? What did he earn? 
What did he do in, him, in, in his own self that made him right with God? What did he gain in the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Remember Paul said back in chapter 3, where is our boasting? It's excluded. Well, if, if Abraham was justified by, by works, that is by, by getting circumcised and by doing something, then he's got something to boast about. But not before God, Paul says. There is no justification for boasting before God. For what does the Scripture say? Ah, Paul always be, brings us back to that question. What does the Scripture say? It doesn't matter what man says. Doesn't matter what culture says. Doesn't matter what a preacher says. If he's not asking that question, what does Scripture say? And that's Paul's question. Well, this is what Scripture says. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of, of, of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. And here he quotes the first two verses of Psalm 32, which we just read responsibly earlier. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are are covered. Blessed is the man or woman against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So, so Paul takes Abraham, the father of the faith, the father of Israel, the father of Judaism, and he goes all the way back to Abraham and he said, listen, Abraham was not justified by his works. Yes, he was circumcised, but he was circumcised as a sign of his believing God, a sign of his faith. That did not bring him anything other than an acknowledgement that he believed God. Scripture says, Paul says, that, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, it was reckoned to him, it was imputed to him, whatever word your translation says, as righteousness. You mean, you mean Abraham didn't have a righteousness that was kind of oozing out of him to where God says, hey, there's Abraham. He's a righteous man. I'm going to use him because he's so good. No. And guess what? He didn't look down at Bill Haynes 40-something years ago and say, you know, boy, there's a, there's a good student and a good man who really does what's right all the time. I'm going to use him. I'm going I'm to give him life because he's so good. No. Matter of fact, in Abraham's life and in my life and in your life, he did it in spite of who we were, not because of who we were. He did it in spite of who you were, not because of who you were. It was by His grace, Paul said to the Ephesian Christians, by His grace, through the instrumentality of faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul has already twice told us in this book that, that the gospel was announced before this. He, he said in chapter 1, if you want to turn back with me or you can just listen to it, in chapter 1, verses 
1 and 2, he said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul says, I want you to understand something. At the very beginning of me laying out this great treatise on what the gospel is and what the gospel says, I want you to understand, this is not my device. This is not something I'm making up. This is something that was pronounced and promised beforehand through his prophets and through the Holy Scriptures. And and then in chapter 3, verse 21, in, in verse 21, he said this, just simply, but now the righteousness of God, which Paul said the righteousness of God is the gospel back in the first chapter, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness of it. He said, listen, the law and the prophets have proclaimed this gospel. The law and the prophets have said you can't live up to any standard that you would set or that that you think you can achieve. It's all by His grace and it's all through faith. And so he says, here is sola fide for Abraham by faith alone. Back in October and, and September, we looked at the, at the solas of the, Re- of the Protestant Reformation in celebration of the 500 years of the Protestant Reformation. And, and we talked about the solas and sola fide, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. I mean, and here Paul is saying, here is the sola fide that you see in the life of Abraham, our father Abraham. He said, listen... Abraham believed God, he trusted God, he had faith in God, believed in faith of the same word there, and it was counted to him as righteousness. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 15 verse 6, you'll find there where in in the book of Genesis it says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The, The righteousness was not his own, it was something that God gave on the basis of his faith. Your righteousness is not your own if you're in Christ. It is the righteousness that is imputed to you, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Abraham had the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ imputed to him because of faith thousands of years ago, just as you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you today. Not your righteousness. If you're trying to be right with God, on the basis of your righteousness, you'll never be right with God. That's what Paul is laying out here so clearly. He says that word counted, credited, added to. It's that same picture we've talked about numerous times of how it is God adding to your account that something that you do not own that you do not have. And I don't care if it's rendered reckoned, considered, imputed, or even, as one translation says, computed. It's all the same. It's God doing His work in your life by grace and through faith. That principle is established back in Genesis 15, 6, and the, po- the apostle simply states the principle in what, we're, in, what in, in many ways in his day were startling terms. When someone heard that, in Paul's culture, they found it startling. It was shocking. 
it was shocking because Paul is, is actually discouraging working for your salvation. In Paul's day, everybody was working for their salvation. They made the sacrifices when they were supposed to make the sacrifices. They, they looked at the law and they tried to obey the, the items of the law. And they said, I'm, I'm keeping up as best I can. I'm sacrificing. When I, so when I don't keep the law, then it's covered by that sacrifice. So I can try to keep the law again. But when I fail to keep the law for another sacrifice. And it was, a, it was an unbelievable rat race they were trying to do to be right with God. Paul says it's futile. You can't do that. Well, it wasn't just in Paul's day they did it. They, we, we do it in our day. You know, we, we've got to do this. We've got to do it. We've got to give so much money. We've got, to, we've got to attend. And I think you ought to attend church. I think you ought to be in church. But, friend, your being in church doesn't get you one iota of a brownie point with God. Do you know that? I was not looking down saying, oh, isn't that nice? Brian's in church today. I'm going to chalk one up to him. That's good. Oh, and he dropped some money in the envelope, uh, in the offering plate. That's good. He, he worshiped, and he's like, oh, this is all good. God's not doing that. God sees us through the, the eyes of a loving father looking at his righteous, loving son or daughter because he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Secondly, it was... It was shocking because there's a description of God here that nobody would have said in Paul's day. He said, not only are you not to work for your salvation, and in that light, he said, you know, the one who works, well, let me ask you this. Tomorrow, most of you, a lot of you are going to get up and you're going to go to work. And you're going to do a job. And after a week or two, your boss is going to give you a, a wage, is going to give you a check. Now, are you going to take that check and, and go to him and say, wow, I, I wasn't expecting this gift from you. This is a great gift that you're giving. Thank you for this gift. No. You're going to take that check and say, my blood, sweat, and tears got this check for me. It's mine because I earned it. I put in the work to get it. There's no gift about it. It would have been a gift if it had said, stay home these two weeks and I'll give you the same amount of money. Now, that might have been a gift, but it wasn't. And he's not going to do that. No, you don't look at your wages and say, my boss is so nice to me. He gives me a gift every two weeks. Well, that's what Paul says. If one works for his wages, you're not counting them as a gift, but you're counting it for what you're due. And so Paul talks about salvation, justification, rightness with God is a gift from God on the basis of grace. It's not something you earn. If it's something you earn, you say, God, I'm due it. Let me have it. And Paul says, that is not only dangerous, that's foolish. That's not only Foolish, that's ridiculous. That's not only ridiculous, that's very dangerous for your soul. It is a gift of God. But, but the second shocking thing Paul makes about here, you don't work for your salvation, you don't get a, a salary uh, that's called salvation, but he, he says something that, that struck those very Jewish ears to which he was speaking as almost blasphemous. He said, and to the one who does not work, 
but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Those people said, Paul, you're telling me that God is going to justify an ungodly person? Folks, that's the only kind of persons there are. If God justified only the godly, he would have justified one man, Jesus himself. That's why, you know, I always get tickled at people who say, well, I, I don't want to invite that person to church because they're, they're a sinner. And if they come, it would just be hypocritical for them to come. What? Well, they're perfect candidates for here. They'd be just like us. Just like us. Paul says, you have faith, you believe in the one who justifies the ungodly. And when you have faith in him, when you believe in him, that faith is counted as righteousness. Righteousness you do not have. Righteousness he accounts to you. He adds to your account. So Abraham is justified sola fide. So is David. He goes on and says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts as righteousness apart from works, and he quotes Psalm 32, 1 and 2, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We could spend the rest of the afternoon on those two verses out of Psalm 32. We, we responsibly read together the entire 32nd Psalm for reason, for a purpose. And that is because in that Psalm, in the remainder of the Psalm, you discover the ground on which David was acquitted, was found righteous, was having his sins forgiven and his sins covered. It's simply that he acknowledged his guilt and cast himself in faith upon the mercy and the grace of God. He didn't say, blessed is the man whose deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered because they don't have any sins anymore. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He doesn't say, blessed is the man against whom the Lord sees as not having sin. Those people don't exist. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God sees your sin. God knows your sin. And God's work of sanctification that we'll look at later in this book is about changing your life by his grace and drawing you from that sin, breaking the power of that sin over your life. But he sees that sin. But if your faith is in Christ, that sin is covered. That sin is forgiven. That sin is counted as, as not even being there because you've been covered in the righteousness of Christ. Do you, do you understand that? That's important, folks. That's why Paul spent so much time over and over showing that we are sinners, we are not righteous people, we are not capable of saving ourselves, and bringing it to seeing that both Abraham and David 
we're justified in the same way Paul was and Peter was and you and I are. By grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. I've had people ask me through the years, but what about my good deeds? Aren't, don't they count for anything before God? They count as filthy rags that are covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Wow. You, you, so I don't need to worry about doing good deeds. Listen, Paul makes clear later, James makes clear, Peter makes clear that when one is covered in the righteousness of Christ, then a natural exuding from that life will be good deeds. It will be works of righteousness. When righteousness is added to us and added to our account, deeds of righteousness become a part of our life. They are seen. But those deeds of righteousness only prove that we are in a gracious state. They do not put us in a gracious state. Sola fide was one of the great cries of Luther in the Reformation. Sola fide is still a cry that needs to be made today. I, I was reminded of the importance of the Protestant Reformation just this past week. Read an article in USA Today. It, 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 it was about Pope Francis, the, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and if, if ever anyone showed me that the Reformation was needed 500 years ago and still needs to be happening today in our world and in our churches, Pope Francis proved it to me. He was having an audience with some children and, and there was one particular little guy, I forget his name uh, now, I've got the article here, but Emmanuel uh, was his name and he, he's smiling at the Pope and waving at him before the video in the video, and, and then the Pope invites him to come up to him because he can tell he's troubled. He's kind of crying a little bit. And, and he, the little boy freezes, and one of the papal assistants helps him up to him, and, he, and the Pope says, here, just whisper in my ear. There's a video of this you can see actually online. But, but he starts talking to him, and, and the Pope talked to him and, and encouraged him, and, and then the little boy went back, and, and the Pope asked him, can I share what we just talked about? And the little boy said, Yeah. He said, a little while ago, Emmanuel told me that a little while ago, his father passed away. He died. His father was a non-believer. He was an atheist. But even being an atheist, he had his four children baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. And the Pope recalled the boy saying, Papa was a good man. Is Papa in heaven? He's an atheist, he's an unbeliever, but by his little boy's words, he was a good man. So, Papa Pope Francis, is Papa in heaven? Pope said, the man did not have the gift of faith. He wasn't a believer. But he had his children baptized, which shows that he had a good heart. Francis then asked the children in the crowd if they thought God would abandon a father like Emmanuel's, who was a good man, and the children shouted back, No! And Pope Francis looked at Emmanuel and said, There, Emmanuel, that is your answer. Your papa 
is in heaven today. It's what R.C. Sproul used to call justification by death alone. That that's the, that's the cultural view of America today and the world for that matter and evidently of, of Pope Francis. And I, I'm not picking on Pope Francis. I'm not picking on the Roman Catholic Church. I'm thankful that they uphold several things that we would. The, the absolute uh, creation of God, the absolute truth that Jesus Christ is, is uh, both God-man, He is God and man. There's a lot of truths there. But listen, when you say that, well, He's a good man and so He's now in heaven with God... He was made right with God because he died, because he had a good heart. It shows a lack of understanding of the gospel. And if we look at our neighbors and we look at our co-workers and we look at our family and we say, well, you know, they're, they're, they got a good heart. They don't really believe. There's no evidence in their life of, of, of faith. There's no evidence in their life of salvation. It's just... It's live for themselves and for the pleasure of this world. But, but, you know, they got a good heart. Many would say they're just a frog that's just kind of churning away and paddling away and working away. And someday they'll get their pad of butter and they can jump right out and be right with God. That is absolute false gospel. Believed by many today proclaimed by many today, but is the absolute opposite of the biblical gospel. Now, I said when I started the sermon that I've, I've often asked the question while working through Romans, why did Paul spend so much time on justification by faith alone? And, and you may be sitting there saying, well, that's funny, you got the question about Paul because I got the same question about you, Bill. Why are you spending so much time on justification by faith alone? Here's the reason. Because justification by faith alone is the only justification before God. It's the only way to be declared righteous. You can't earn your righteousness. You can't do your righteousness yourself. It's only what He does that matters. And it only comes by faith. It only comes by faith. By believing Him. It only comes by trusting Him. Trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly. You may say, well, you know, I, I know a lot of people who are really working hard to, to be good and, and try to tilt the scales in their favor. Folks, there are no scales. There are no scales. It's not a matter of can I get enough good to outweigh my bad or can I do this. That, that does not exist according to the Scriptures. And what we always have to ask, what does the Scripture say? Not what does this preacher or that preacher or this church or that church or anything else. Not what do they say. What does the Scripture say? Because ultimately what the Scripture says is what God says. You know, when, when you really boil it down, what we're talking about here is what is your view of the authority of Scripture? What is your view of the authority of God through Scripture? Are you going to believe Him? Or are you going to believe what just seems right in your own eyes? 
going to believe him, God, Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you just going to believe what I want to believe? And see, if you don't have the right view of God, you don't have the right view of his authority, and you don't have the right view who he is, and, and you won't have a right view of what he says. And ultimately, that is a dangerous position to be in. Very dangerous. Let's pray.